Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series this week called The Triumph of the Lamb. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 to 18, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The False Prophet. There's nothing more important to a Christian than to have a clear understanding of the gospel. Furthermore, there is nothing that Satan tries harder to distort than the fundamental nature of the gospel. The foundational truths that that we are sinners both by nature and in our choices, that we're alienated from God, well, that's foundational. That God, rich in mercy, sent his only son into the world to take the initiative to rescue ruined sinners, well, that's foundational. That Christ lived a sinless life and that he was crucified for our sins. That is, his death on the cross was a substitutionary death. He died for us. He paid the penalty for our sins on our behalf. We did nothing to atone for our sins. He did everything. That's foundational. See, for this reason, our salvation comes to us by grace and by grace alone. You can't earn heaven. You can't earn peace with God. You you can't earn eternal life. God has to give it as a gift, a gift that we haven't earned or deserved. But then how is the gift given? And the answer, it is given through faith and through faith alone. It is given as we simply believe God, who has given us the gospel. And by faith, we repent of our sins and we trust in Christ, Christ alone to forgive and to reconcile us to God. And furthermore, we were so helpless in doing anything that pleased God The Holy Spirit was sent both to draw us to Christ, but also to change our hearts. Once we were enemies of the gospel, now we love the gospel. That's called being born again. That's called having received regeneration. Listen, Satan will do anything he can to subvert what I've just said. You know, one of the ways he does that is by sending false prophets. In Matthew 24, verse 24, Jesus says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now, I, for one, see this as a warning as well as a a great source of comfort. The warning is that both false messiahs and false prophets will be so successful, they will seem like Pied Pipers. Their following becomes extremely large. They are overwhelmingly persuasive. But the source of comfort is that it's not possible to mislead the elect. That's because the elect are the elect chosen by God. Jesus promised us, I'm reading John 10, 27 to 29. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Now, of course, Jesus uses means to keep his sheep. In John 15, verse 4, he says, abide in me. You know, we remain in him by obeying him. We remain through prayer. We we abide in him by by reading the scripture and by becoming overwhelmingly familiar with the scripture, with with what it teaches us. And, And by that, we are able to spot a false teacher, the one who denies the gospel. The reason for this introduction to today's passage in Revelation is because I've tried to make the case 
that the events that happen at the end of the age are merely an intensification of the spiritual warfare that has always been present ever since Jesus defeated Satan on the cross, and thus Satan has been toppled from his position of power. Barred from heaven, Satan has intensified the warfare that is felt on earth. Now, in our last section, we saw the rise of the beast or the Antichrist, who is the culmination of all the Antichrists in history. And today, in our section, we will see the rise of the false prophet, who is the intensification of all false prophets throughout history. So I'm reading Revelation 13, 11 to 18. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image of the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who do not worship the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 666. Now I'm going to divide what we've just read into three sections. In the first section, verses 11 and 12, we will describe this second beast of Revelation. Then in verses 13 to 15, we will look at what makes this beast so attractive, so, so persuasive, that is, what the beast is able to accomplish. And finally, in the last section, in verses 16 to 18, we're going to discuss one of the most perplexing sections of Revelation, that is, the meaning of the number 666 and how that relates to money and commerce and the economy of the beast. So let's begin by describing the second beast. John says, I saw another beast. Now, the first beast is the Antichrist who rules the earth and mercilessly persecutes the followers of Jesus, utterly devastating the church. And then a second beast, not a rival to the first beast, but a powerful supporter to the Antichrist, who makes a commitment to the first beast to be a spiritual and religious duty for all people. And that shouldn't surprise us. By far, the majority of the earth's nations have had religion at the center of their nation. The ancient Roman Empire had a wide variety of priests given to encouraging the worship of the emperor. Such then is the role of this very powerful man at the end of the age. Now, I notice that whereas the Antichrist is said to rise from the sea, the second beast, the false prophet, is said to arise from the earth. I think we do too much to try to understand the difference between the two, but it's interesting to contrast this with Revelation 10.1, where we hear of mighty angel who comes down from heaven. But neither the beast nor the false prophet come down from heaven. They arise from the sea or the earth. I think we're to understand here that neither the beast nor the false prophet are seen to have come from God. See, the latter part of verse 11 says that he has two horns like a lamb, and yet he speaks like a dragon. 
Well, back in Revelation 5, Jesus is presented as a lamb. He stands before the throne and he looks as though he's been slaughtered. But in Revelation 12, the dragon is a reference to Satan. It seems that this false prophet comes to us looking like the Messiah, promising some of the very same things that Jesus promises, but he speaks with the authority of Satan. You know, a great many Bible teachers have thought that because of this description, this false prophet makes a specialty of targeting supposed Christians. You know, as an aside, it should be noted that in Nazi Germany, a great many of the liberal Christians, that is, those who denied the Bible and the gospel, became willing followers of Hitler. Having no ground for truth, they were very quickly to seize on error. See, verse 12 says he exercises all the authority of the first beast, but that he does so in the presence of the beast. That is, he's directly answerable to the beast and works on his behalf. His task is to motivate the entire world in religious devotion to the Antichrist. Then we're told how he does it. Now, back in verse 3 of chapter 13, we were told of one of the heads of the beast that was mortally wounded and then was miraculously healed. And now in verse 12, we are told that the false prophet makes the earth worship the first beast whose wound was healed. So I assume this means that the false prophet draws attention to a false death and resurrection, pointing out that the beast is a divine being worthy of worship. Who else could rise from the dead unless, of course, he is worthy of worship? And we notice that unless one is guided by the truth of the gospel, His arguments seem overwhelmingly persuasive. When we get to verse 13, we will see that the beast is also able to do miracles, further deceiving all manner of people. I mean, notice, all of us have to decide on what basis we believe and on what basis we reject what we hear. So let's make application. If you are persuaded because a teacher speaks to your needs and seems to give you what you want, you're easily deceived. If you're persuaded because of an attractive person, you're easily deceived. If you're persuaded because of a desire for miracles, you're easily deceived. The elect, followers of Jesus, cling to Christ alone. They hold fast to Scripture, know their Bible well, and commit to God's truth and cannot be deceived. Sixty years of Bible teaching ministry in Canada, that's what we're celebrating in 2018. And for that reason, we're launching a number of special events and activities throughout the year to celebrate God's faithfulness. We begin this month by airing a new series featuring both founder Theodore Epp and Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld. It's a special series for a number of reasons. First, the consistency of messages from both men hold the same high standard of teaching you become confident in. And secondly, there's a wonderful solidarity of mission and passion for the scriptures, the legacy and vision for the future. As special gift to you, our friends and supporters, we want to offer this 60th anniversary five message series on CD as a free gift. All you need to do is contact us today and ask. And to receive more information or support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. We've looked at the identity of the false prophet. Let's now look at his activities or why it is that he inspires such religious fervor in all who follow him. 
Look again at verses 13 to 14a. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth. Now, I want to compare that text that we've just read to what the Apostle Paul says of the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. He says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and are saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they might believe what is false. So notice, first of all, in Revelation 13, verse 14, this false prophet is allowed to work these signs, and in 2 Thessalonians, it is God himself who sends a strong delusion on those who have refused to love the truth. In short, the delusion that is coming is a judgment of God on the earth. I am, as I am often reminded of Luther's words, that the devil is no more than an unwilling servant of God. He may rage against God, but he is able to accomplish no more than what God allows him to do. And in the end, God's purposes are served even while he rages against the truth. And so the false prophet is allowed to perform great signs. Magic has always been an important part of pagan religions. You know, when Moses confronted Pharaoh and turned the Nile into blood, we're told that the magicians of Egypt were able to reproduce this through their magical arts. You know, the book of Daniel tells how the magicians of Babylon plied their trade. But it was Isaiah that said that the magicians of Babylon will not be able to rescue them in the day of their disaster. We think of a man named Simon the Sorcerer. A man says, Acts 8 verse 9, who practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was someone great. All that leads me to believe that this false prophet will not be performing fake miracles. No, he has genuine power. Our text tells us that he is able even to make fire come down from heaven. Now, astute Bible readers will immediately think about Elijah the prophet and the priests of Baal. Now, you're going to remember that the priests of Baal were unable to make fire fall on the altar, but, but Elijah was able. And from that sign, the people concluded that Yahweh and not Baal was God. Please understand, when you read that passage, this is not the way in which the Old Testament instructed people to recognize the difference between a true and a false prophet. So listen to Deuteronomy chapter 13, 1 to 3. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. See, the test for determining the truth from God is to see whether the prophet is speaking words that are in line with the revealed will of God found where? In Scripture. See, the reason God used a sign in Elijah's time is because those people were not following the truth. And they needed to see a sign. They needed to know that Baal worship was impotent. But the true people of God don't need to see fire fall on the altar. They know the testimony that God has spoken in his historic word. 
And so as we've seen in Paul's words, when the last great false prophet arises, he will confuse only those who are already perishing. By the way, my dear listener, are you the kind of person who's convinced by miracles and, and it's by that that you believe, or are you guided by scripture? Look, the airwaves, the television screens of our continent are filled with false workers of miracles, men and women who do not teach the Bible, or if they do, they twist and distort it. Don't be deceived by them. Trust the word and trust those who explain the word. Stop worshiping miracles because if you do, you're being deceived. The lesson to be learned from the great end of the age deception should not surprise us. See, the same kind of deception has always been happening. Now, let's move to verses 16 to 18, which, which is the question that has perplexed so many Christians in the past. It's the question of the number 666, the mark of the beast. What does all of that mean? Look again at verse 16. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. And back in Revelation 7, verse 3, as as God's people were, were standing at the threshold of the Great Tribulation, we there read that they were sealed on the forehead by God himself. See, God marked them as his own and set his seal of protection on them. Now then, I know of no Bible teacher that argues that Revelation 7, way back there, is some kind of a physical mark. And most likely, we're using symbolic language here, and we're confirming that these are the people that belong to Christ. You know, from my vantage point, what we have in Revelation 13, verse 16, is the satanic counterfeit to what God has done. The false prophet calls all the people of the earth to be in some fashion sealed unto the Antichrist. They're marked as belonging to him. They are under his dominion. Is this a literal physical mark? Well, I don't know, but I can't imagine that it has to be. See, in some fashion, this false prophet demands some loyalty to the Antichrist. So, in ancient Rome, this activity was performed by men and women going to the temple when they poured out libations to Caesar. It was demanded of citizens of Rome that they would proclaim that Caesar is Lord and God. Now, will the future hold something like that, some kind of a pledge of allegiance or an oath that is demanded of all? Well, we simply don't know. But as I've said in the past, speculation, well, that's of no value here. But then, from demanding a mark of loyalty to the beast, we see in verse 17 that a pledge of loyalty to the beast is then connected to the economy. Verse 17 says, no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, there is really actually no historical precedent for that. Ancient Rome had no such system, although it must be said that Christians who refused to pour out libations to Caesar often suffered severe economic consequences. They might have found themselves kept out of the trade guilds, or they might have had others boycott their businesses. You know, it's for that reason that that many scholars think that that being a Christian in the early days often meant economic reprisals from the pagan community. Now, I do know that Revelation 13, verse 17 has led to a great deal of speculation. 
know, all manner of people have speculated that there would be a, you know, a computer chip that's placed in people, that, that a cashless society is going to develop, that, that's going to require some kind of a, a mark to activate your finances. So, so let's be clear. Talking that way is not Bible study. It's just speculation. We do know, however, that the final beast is able to severely punish anyone financially if they don't get on board with his program. And that should also teach us a lesson about false teaching. You see, anytime someone teaches that if you love God, you're going to get rich, understand what a deception we have. Today, all over the world, Christians are financially persecuted and prosecuted for their faith. Trusting in Jesus has meant for them poverty and not riches. And if you believe that riches are essential to faith, well, the false prophet has you. Now we go to verse 18, the verse about the number 666. You know, in Hebrew, they didn't actually use numbers, but they used letters. And it's been pointed out that if you transliterate the word beast into the Hebrew numbering system, well, you actually get 666. And it's also true that the Hebrew numbering system for the Roman emperor Nero, who had both Paul and Peter killed, well, that also works out to 666. Now, as we've seen in Nero's case, there really had been a rumor that he was raised from the dead. And because of that, some Bible teachers believe that this is a symbol of every evil emperor in the past. Well, my response is that it seems to me that Nero is a type or a symbol of the great evil that comes at the end of the age. But at any rate, there can be no doubt that the seven churches in Asia who received the book of Revelation would immediately have thought of the great imperial cult of emperor worship, and they were warned. Don't give in to false teaching, even when it takes upon itself a far more powerful form than you've ever seen before. Remember, trust in Christ and in his resurrection alone, and you will resist the false prophet. John, in the light of what you've said, give me a couple of examples of what might be false teaching today. Uh, ben, there's so many things I could mention, but I think I'd like to just, you know, highlight just a few elements. Those individuals that teach that there are other ways to God outside of Christ. I mean, that's an alarm bell that should go off. Christ alone is our Savior. I might also mention the importance of holding to what we call justification by faith. That is, we are saved by grace through faith alone. And anything that denies that, and there are so many implications from that, uh, would be an example of false teaching. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. As we begin to reflect on the Easter season, we want to help you dig deeply into the significance, drama, and ultimate selfless sacrifice of Jesus. First, listen intently to Dr. Newfeld's new two-week Easter series beginning Monday, March 18th. That can be heard on this station, online at backtothebible.ca, or by downloading the podcast or Back to the Bible Canada's mobile app. 
Also, we want to encourage you in a special way by offering you Lee Strobel's book, A Case for Easter, as our free gift. In this book, Strobel makes a thorough investigation into three critical Easter questions. Was Jesus really dead after his ordeal on the cross? Was his tomb actually empty on that first Easter morning? And did credible people subsequently encounter him? I think you'll find Strobel's book enlightening and deeply inspiring. So call us today for your free copy at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.